Behold, a gateway to your own past, if you wish. is strange, it's alien, and it won't give us what we would like to have. Well, it's a cold, snowy day here in the Pacific Northwest, so grab a cup of coffee, pretend that it's 29 degrees and there's four inches of snow outside, and let's spend some time talking history. But by now you know I'm not live on Bill Mick, live right at the moment. This has to do with some dental issues that are going on, and frankly, it has to do with the medication they have me on. It makes it virtually impossible for me to get up in the morning, so no Bill with me as I do this solo, but just pretend that it's Bill Mick Live, and you're listening in the 8 o'clock hour on a Tuesday, and it'll feel like normal. A few months ago on the show, we had a complainer, we had a caller who complained. They didn't really understand why we're talking about these things, because, quote, Only three or four people actually did anything, unquote, when it came to the idea of the revolution, when it came to the idea of the acts of the patriots, and later even uh, with the Constitutional Convention. It was just a few people. So if it was just a few people, you know, why get excited about it, I guess? There is a huge problem with that idea, and that problem comes with a lot of baggage to it. The problem could be as simple as we don't know what we should know. The fact that we only know three or four names of the people who who did those things is tragic in my mind. Why do I say that? Well, I have this theory about history. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this later, but the the idea, this, this theory that I have is simply this doesn't matter how dynamic or how famous a leader is. If nobody follows him or her, what difference does it make? It's a question of free will. It it really is. And, And in a theological sense, I'm very much a free will person. I don't believe in destiny. I don't believe in predestination. I I don't accept those Calvinistic ideas. I firmly believe that we are all free will creations. You take away our free will, we're not really human. And when it comes to things in history, just because one person did something, or said something, or encouraged something, doesn't necessarily have an effect unless and until someone else says, I should go along with that. I should follow along with it. Because if I don't follow along with it, well, then what? And there are plenty of examples throughout history where someone did that, where someone said, we should do this. And people said, nah, and they didn't go along. There are plenty of examples in history where people did go along, and it was a bad idea. Don't have to look far back into the 20th century to find those. But it was all about their free will and their willingness to follow along and their willingness to do something that caused those things to happen. For every George Washington and Horatio Gates and Nathaniel Green, there were literally thousands of Americans who followed them into combat. 
one of whom happened to be my eight generations ago great-grandfather. Actually, several of my great-grandfathers, my great-grandparents were there. It's an amazing thing to me to think that one of them, as a 14-year-old boy, decided, this is where I need to be. If nobody exercises their free will and follows someone's voice, there really isn't any history. And that's part of the problem with that complaint. So what does all this mean today? Well, we'll tell you about that in 60 seconds. In 1778, the height of the American Revolutionary War, America, the United States, was desperate, desperately trying to obtain an alliance with France. Now look, there were some reasons for that. France was a kind of a natural fit for America. It really was. I know it sounds strange to say today, but we had much more in common with France in the 1770s than we do today. But in 1778, the United States desperately trying to obtain this alliance, and France and indeed their ally Spain were looking to, let's just call it, regain their advantage against Britain. They had lost the Seven Years' War, what we call the French and Indian War, and they were terrified that Britain had become too powerful. They were concerned that if they didn't regain some of that advantage against Britain, they would be overwhelmed and subsumed and lose ground to Britain. Now, throughout the early days of the American Revolutionary War, France was covertly supporting us. They were sending cannons and muskets and ammunition, but they couldn't do it openly. The British would have seen that as an act of war. The Brits would have, uh, you know, certainly have seen that as an aggressive act. And France, for all of its desire to kind of stick it to the British, wasn't really willing to go that far yet. There were still concerns in the French court. The main one being, well, can the Americans win? Can they actually pull this off? Well, of course we can. We're Americans, not Americans. No, seriously. If, if France, in their mind, if they back America and we lose, well, what happens then? If they join the war on our side, then they already have a war with England and it may not go the way they want it to go. What they actually need, what they actually want, is some indication that the Americans aren't just competitive in this conflict. We had shown that we could be, you know, toe-to-toe with the British along the way. Bunker Hill, Lexington, Kentucky, not Lexington, Kentucky, Lexington and Concord. <laughs> Lexington, Kentucky doesn't have anything to do with it yet. Lexington and Concord, sorry. And we had shown flashes of brains, but likewise, we had shown flashes of just absolute incompetence, uh, New York and, and so forth and so on, and miracles that had to save our army. And there was deep concern in the court of France that, well, what happens if they can't? And what happens if we find ourselves in a war with Britain caused by America, but the Americans aren't in it anymore? I mean, imagine just from a strategic standpoint how much of the British army 
and to a degree the British Navy, we tied down just fighting us compared with the rest of the world for the British Empire. Do you see the do you see the difference there from a strategic standpoint? This is a major, major consideration. Can the Americans actually not just be competitive here? Can they not just, I don't know, tie the British up a little bit? Can they actually win this? Because if they can't win this, then we really don't want to get ourselves involved. War is very expensive business, as you know. Part of the reason for the American Revolutionary War is the expenses that the British incurred in the Seven Years' War, as we now call it, the, the French and Indian War. That was what led to the British to do things like the Townsend Act, the Tea Act, and do things that were an anathema and arguably caused the American Revolution in the sense that no taxation without representation, none of those concerns would become issues. And in the end, the Americans standing against the British was something that most of the world really liked but not enough to really just jump on board. And the French were very, very nervous about that. But in London and in Paris, there were Americans who were sent there by the Congress of the United States specifically to convince France that not only can we win this thing, but you have a moral imperative to be a part of it. You are as anti-tyrannical as, as we are, which is kind of a weird thing to tell another monarch, but we did. But you are, just as, you are just as deeply embedded in this as we are. And if you will help us, it will help topple this tyranny in Britain. Now, again, there were men sent to do this. But if you were to look at, I don't know, even Wikipedia today, read a history book or something along those lines, you might discover that it doesn't talk about those men. It talks about that man. Who was that man? It was, of course, Ben Franklin. But is that really what happened? Or were there other people involved? You know, more than just that one guy. Franklin gets the credit. But is that really how history went? We'll talk more about that when we get back here on Dave Does History on Bill Mick Live. I'm Bill Mick with WMMB Radio in Melbourne, Florida, where we have a governor that will actually stand for what's right. My show airs mornings from 6 to 9 Eastern. Every day we discuss news, politics, and social issues that impact us all. Tuesdays in our 8 o'clock hour, Dave joins me for something we call Dave Does History, where Dave brings us events from our past that contain lessons for right now. To listen live, find WMMB on the iHeartRadio app. Welcome back. Dave Does History, Bill McLive. Glad you're with us today. December 20th, 2022. Which is a banner day. It really is. Not only do we have a lot of snow up here, the most snow we've had in a long time, um, we are completely snowed in. I I actually made the mistake of going out this morning earlier 
Uh, I didn't want to, but there was a minor league emergency that required me to go downtown, and I live at the top of the hill. And look, I grew up in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah. I know how to drive in the snow. And I'm telling you, it was not easy. It was work. So I'm glad to be home in one piece, and I'm going to stay here. I'm not moving for, for quite a while. But in December, on December 20th, 1741, in the state of, or at that time, the colony of Virginia, was born a young baby, because babies are all young, by the name of Arthur Lee. Now, oddly enough, Arthur had three older brothers who, I'm just going to guess, you probably have heard of. Richard Henry Lee, Francis Lightfoot Lee, William Lee. Now, again, if you're in your mind, you might not know who they are, what they did. You might, you might not know those things. But I will tell you that all three of those men were very involved in the American Revolution. And at least one of them was very involved with the Constitutional Convention. These are patriots. This is a family of patriots. This is a family of men who are Americans through and through. And Arthur Lee is the youngest brother, the baby brother. And he, of course, wants to make his own way in life. He ends up in England at Eton College, where he studies to become a doctor. And by all accounts, he is a brilliant doctor, probably one of the best in the world at that time. He writes a, a treatise. His, his doctrinal dissertation, that is still referenced today. It's amazing how bright and incredible this man is as a doctor. But in 1764, after the Townsend Acts, he becomes what is known as what we would call today as radicalized. He becomes an American patriot. He becomes an on fire, I hate the king, you know, kind of, kind of an American patriot. And he writes a, a piece called, quote, An Essay in the Vindication of the Continental Colonies of America, unquote. And it is brilliant. It is an amazing piece. It is something that really grasps the attention of the world at the time. And in fact, this one piece gets him elected to membership in what is called the American Philosophical Society, which still exists to this day. He is considered to be an intellectual supporter of American idealism, and he's very good at it. In fact, he's so good at it that he decides, yeah, I'm a great doctor. He probably didn't say that in his head. He might have. I don't know. He decides that I can be more effective not as a doctor, not as a physician, but as a lawyer instead. Now, remember, in lawyering in those days was much different than it is now. And so he goes to college in London, England, where he studies the law and passes the bar in London, England. He is an American patriot. He is an American who opposes the crown's tyranny in the colonies. He becomes an American patriot lawyer. And just imagine that. You're in London in 1775. And the debate everywhere is about the American colonies and whether or not they should go, whether they shouldn't go. And the guy you're arguing with in the pub or wherever, the restaurant, whatever, is 
a lawyer who's American, trained in your law and speaking on behalf of the colonies using your law against it. Imagine that experience. He will become, Arthur Lee will become so important in the American cause in London in the 1775-1776 range that both Samuel Johnson, the British one, not the American one, the guy that's responsible for the English dictionary, who is very much against American independence, and John Wilkes, the member of parliament who is an ardent supporter in parliament of America's cause, who believes that America should be not just, don't just let them go, let them go and be our friends. Imagine how much stronger we'll be with America, the United States, and England united as, as allies. That's what John Wilkes is thinking. Both of those men will dine with Arthur Lee. They will meet with him and dine with him to discuss the issue because he becomes such an outstanding spokesperson for America and so important that even those who oppose American liberty in London want to hear from him. Welcome back. In 1770, Arthur Lee is asked by the colony of Massachusetts at that time to become their agent in London. That is to be their spokesperson in London. Now remember, he's a Virginian, but he is so effective at what he does, so good at communicating and so good at relationships that he is asked to become that agent, that spokesperson for Massachusetts. Along the way, around that time, he meets Benjamin Franklin for the first time. Now, again, in history, we have this image of Benjamin Franklin. We have this ideological pedestal that we put Franklin on, and maybe rightfully so, but I can assure you that Arthur Lee was not impressed with Benjamin Franklin at all. He thought Benjamin Franklin was a detriment to the American cause. He believed that Benjamin Franklin and his extravagant lifestyle was so offensive to the general mindset of Americans who were basically, you know, not wealthy people and didn't like to, didn't like to dally with, with courts and those kinds of things. He felt that Franklin's lifestyle was so offensive that it would make him completely ineffective as a good negotiator between free peoples and a tyrant. In fact, he told Sam Adams that. This guy, you need to get this guy out of here. He's not helping. He believed that Franklin was, well, to borrow a phrase that I use a lot, he believed that Benjamin Franklin was an attention whore. And, as you know, attention whores are going to attention whore. It's what they do. He was just totally anti-Franklin. And his reasons seem to be fairly straightforward to me. It's not, it's not that he's jealous or anything like that. He just thinks Franklin is not going to be a good negotiator because he's an actor. In the meantime, Lee is asked by Congress to become their, and I'm using the air quote thing here, correspondent in London. That's a fancy term, correspondent. It means find out everything that's going on and tell us. In effect, Arthur Lee becomes America's first spy in London. His job is to tell Congress everything that's going on. And he does such a good job of it. He does such a fantastic job of this 
that after the war is joined in 1775, and things are really getting heated up, and this desperate need for this alliance with France becomes really front and center by late 1777 and into 1778. That Congress says, you know what, we need a three-team, three-man team to go to Paris and talk to France. Now, you know it's a different world because today, Vladimir Putin would have had all three of them arrested and thrown into jail. But in that days, in those days, they didn't necessarily do that. And so, Congress appointed Benjamin Franklin, Silas Dean, and Arthur Lee as the team to go to Paris and negotiate with France. Now, France, as I've already told you, wants to be part of this. They are just looking for an excuse. We just need a good reason to believe that the Americans not only are you know, in this, but they're in it to win it. And while Franklin, Dean, and Lee are there trying desperately to convince the King of France, the Court of France, that this is a great thing to do, their own personal animosities towards each other begin to tear at their ability to successfully negotiate. Franklin is Franklin. I mean, he is who he is. Everybody knows he's the most famous man in the world. Silas Dean is who? Guess we'll have to do another one for him later on. And Arthur Lee is the younger brother of the four brilliant patriots back home. France wants to join. But they need a reason. They need a cause. They need a they, they need that cause belly. They need to know that this is going to be worth it. And as of yet, they don't have that. Despite Franklin, Dean, and Lee's begging to the contrary. But if France can get that reason, then maybe their words will carry some weight. Talk more about that after this break. Hey, this is Whitey. And this is Hank. And you can listen to our podcast, Two Pint Talk, on all your favorite podcast sources. So come check it out where we talk about two beers and, and everything stuff. <laughs> Listen to Two Pint Talk on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Dave Does History. I'm Bill McLive. Glad you're with us. On a snowy, cold day here. It's about 29 degrees here. Oh, just ticked up to 30. Woo-hoo. <laughs> I love this kind of weather. It's so beautiful outside. To me, it's just fantastic, but for most of the people who drive around here, it's not a problem. Or it is a problem. On September 19th, 1777, at Saratoga, New York, there was a great battle. Even as Franklin, Dean, and Lee were begging France to join the fight, the American army continued to battle the British, and was not going particularly well, as you know. We could spend hours talking about the battle at Saratoga, but there's really only a few things you need to know. First, the battle did not start well. We only had about 9,000 troops, and there was a big, big debate, big argument between 
the general, the American general, Horatio Gates, who we've talked about, and his subordinate, a guy by the name of Benedict Arnold, who was feeling kind of put out. He, he wasn't getting the attention he felt he deserved. And this little falling out led to a huge argument. And that huge argument ended with, with General Gates relieving Benedict Arnold of his command and sent him away. Go away, you're, you're done, you're not here. Benedict Arnold went away and then said, you know what, I'm going to go fight anyway. And he just ignored General Gates and went back to his command and led it into the battle, where he would be badly injured and spend the next five months recuperating, but proving his bravery and proving his willingness to serve his country. This was also the battle where the British discovered that American soldiers were not just a bunch of frontiersmen who hid behind rocks and that sort of thing. In fact, one of them would write later, quote, the courage and obstinacy with which the Americans fought were the astonishment of everyone. And we now have become fully convinced that they are not the contemptible enemy we have hitherto imagined them, incapable of standing a regular engagement, and that they would only fight behind strong and powerful works, unquote. The British army was beginning to realize, the, the average British soldier was beginning to realize, these people mean business, and they're not just going to walk away from us. They had discovered that originally at Bunker Hill, but that was just a, that was just a, you know, a one-off was kind of the mindset. But now, this American army, which started this battle with 9,000 people and ended it with over 15,000 people who showed up late, all of a sudden was showing themselves to be a serious European-quality army. General Burgoyne, Burgoyne the, the British commander, ended up surrendering after the battle to General Gates. General Burgoyne was a very famous British general. He was a very accomplished British general. But his, this surrender ended his career. He returned to England and would never, ever command in the field again. General Arnold, after the battle, had his rank and his seniority restored. He was appointed as the military governor of Philadelphia. But it wasn't a very successful command because he was injured and he spent most of that five months in bed. And then later he would be appointed to the command at the fort at West Point, which of course would begin another odyssey and another story we'll talk about some other time. The victory over the, over the British at Saratoga would actually cause the Congress of the United States, at the urging of General Washington, to declare the first Thanksgiving holiday in the United States. And on December 18, 1777, the entire country paused and gave thanks to God for everything that we had been given, everything that we had accomplished, for this victory at Saratoga which proved that we were able to do things, that showed the world and France that we were Americans and we are in this to win this. We'll be back in 60 seconds. The Battle of Saratoga and the American victory there convinced the French and their king that, yep, these guys are serious 
Let's go ahead with that alliance. And in the early part of 1778, the French made the alliance official, signing off on that and beginning to send troops, ships, ammunition, supplies to America to really begin to fight like we should have been. In what should have been a moment of personal triumph for Arthur Lee, he was part of the team, Franklin, Dean, and Lee. Sounds like a law firm, doesn't it? Franklin, Dean, and Lee. Only they would have wanted it Lee, Lee, Dean, and Franklin, or Dean, Lee, and Franklin. In what should have been the moment of his personal triumph, the debates and the discussions and the arguments between the three of them just boiled over to the point where Congress had no choice. And they fired Lee and Dean as representatives of America to France and told them to come home. Franklin gets all the, the glory. He gets all the credit. In fact, if you read various websites, you'll read about how Franklin negotiated this, this alliance and secured it. And you might find a passing reference to Silas Dean and Arthur Lee, but probably not. Arthur Lee went home to America where he was elected to and served in the Virginia House of Delegates. Later, he would serve in the Continental Congress and on the U.S. Treasury Board. When the, Continental Con or when the Constitutional Convention came about, he was a pretty ardent anti-federalist. He didn't feel like the Constitution agreed with Sam Adams. He was very good friends with Sam Adams, by the way. They corresponded throughout their lives. So it's not surprising that he was such a good friend of, of Sam Adams as would make him an anti-federalist. And after the ratification of the Constitution, he did something that many of the other anti-federalists didn't do. While other anti-federalists went on to serve in the new government, he chose instead to retire. And he went and bought a place called Lansdowne Estate. It's in Urbana, Virginia, and it's still there today. You can go. It's, a, it's on the record of protected places. And while he was there, he was elected. Remember I told you that he was a brilliant doctor and an even better lawyer? While he was there, he was elected as a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He was recognized as one of the smartest, most brilliant, most talented Americans in our entire country. And in 1792, he died was buried on the grounds of his, estate, of his estate out back, and he's there to this day. You can go and see him. He gets almost no credit for his work both in London and in France, but whose fault is that? Is it Franklin's fault because winners write the history and he wrote it so that he looked brilliant? Is it Congress's fault? They didn't give him any recognition for what he did. I guess you could make the argument that he was, you know, an anti-federalist, so why would they? What if it's just us? Do we accept the line that only three or four guys ever did anything, so that means we don't need to ever even learn about the other people who did? I go back to my theory about history. I believe that free choice, just like in theology, drives history. It doesn't matter how dynamic a leader is if nobody follows them. People make a choice as to follow and participate or to not do those things. And those choices are what actually drives history. Those choices are what make things happen. 
Arthur Lee, born this day in 1741, 1740, sorry, went to Paris, France, and he helped convince all of France that our cause was worth their efforts. Now, if no one had listened to him, we would have no reason to even think about Arthur Lee or Silas Dean. If no one had said, hey, that makes sense. Hey, that's a great idea. Hey, that's important. It wouldn't have mattered. But they did. The French joined us, and the American Revolutionary War would be won, along with, as my great-great-great-grandmother said, would be won with our liberties. And for that reason alone, maybe we should celebrate and remember the 282nd birthday of Arthur Lee, an American who helped build this country. We'll see you next time for Dave Does History on Bill Mick Live.